Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox in Washington, D.C. I have Ben Olson. Ben, how's it going? Going great. Awesome. We're super excited to have with us in Santa Barbara, I hope, uh, Anne Levine. Anne, you got back from Dubai, okay? I'm back. Yeah, it was a great little vacation. I have to sneak that in before June LSAT comes around. Yeah, you know how it goes. Sure. Um, that's amazing. 15 years of marriage. Congratulations. Thank you. You got to celebrate got to celebrate everything in life, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yes, you do. Um, today we are going to talk to Anne, and we were joking before we started recording. Uh, Anne goes on vacation, and then all hell breaks loose <laughs> with all sorts of new news. So I, I actually think that LSAC follows my Facebook feed and just knows, <laughs> okay, Anne's going to be in a plane, let's release LSAT scores now. Or Anne's going to be in Maldives in the middle of nowhere, and so let's decide you can take the LSAT as many times as you want. <laughs> We're all paranoid. Ben and I are paranoid <laughs> about the LSAT, too, so that's, that's no problem. Um, well, where do you want to start? I, I think people are maybe most interested in the uh, LSAC announcing that they have eliminated the uh, three times in two years rule. So yeah, what? pretty big deal. Yeah. Pretty big deal. So I have some thoughts on this. I think for smart applicants, this is a wonderful thing. And for some applicants, this is a horrible thing. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. So instead of being restricted to only taking the LSAT three times in a two-year period, now they're saying, no, you can take the LSAT however many times you can fit in since it's currently only offered four times a year, although that will probably change soon. Um, so here, here's the thing. For people who suffer test anxiety, I think that this actually is a good mental thing that there's less pressure on each time you take the LSAT. Um, I think it, I think it does release a little bit pressure valve for people or people who took it that third time and it did not go how it should have. Okay. So now you do get that for that person that that happens to, um, you get, you get to catch a break here. But what I'm worried about is for all those people who, um, aren't really preparing for the LSAT just keep taking it, you know, because they can, you know, the people who are chasing a goal score that's not really reasonable for them, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money. It's going to take time. I, I think that if it's used wisely, it's only a good thing. Um, and it does take pressure off, you know, should I cancel the score? Should I keep the score? Should I withdraw from the test? But on the other hand, the schools are looking for the highest score. So it does give more, more options for people that, it takes them a little bit longer to get there for whatever reason. Makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we were joking on the show last time that we were going to, you know, two years from now, we were going to be talking about students who have taken the test now seven times Ugh. or nine times. What, what, how are you going to react? I mean, cause you used to be on a committee yeah. of admission admissions, right? At two yeah. different schools. Yeah. I was director of admissions at two schools. Yeah. And, you know, obviously everything of that, that was back in the day when all law schools averaged multiple LSAT scores. Um, so, but in the what, 13, 14 years I've been law school experting, um, you know, that since 2006, I believe is when they changed the policy to be the higher of multiple scores. And there's no reason that's going to change that the whole higher of multiple scores matters. But I do think that there are a select group of individuals that chase a magic number, whether that's a 170 or, or whatever that magic number is to them. 
And it really shouldn't take seven tries to get there unless you've made some monumental mistakes in judgment about whether to take the LSAT along the way. And I think that law schools are always testing for good judgment. Um, I think it, it's still, I, I, oh, I really want to say something snide politically. I'll reframe. <laughs> okay. So good judgment still matters, at least to law schools. So, um, you know, you also have to think about your reasons for taking the test and you're still going to have to explain, I think, to law schools why it took you seven times to get the score you want them to look at. You also have to, people also have to realize that it's very unlikely you're going to take the LSAT seven times and have a clear upward trajectory each time, Right. So then what do you do with the person who has a 159, a 158, then a 163, and then comes back with a 156, and then a 161? Like, was it really worth, does that show anything to the law schools? Does it even show good judgment in continuing to take the test? Um, So I think good judgment about whether you're ready for the test will still matter. I think you'll still want to explain crazy score trends uh, in an addendum with your application. Um, So I would say that people should really use this unlimited ability to take the LSAT wisely, that really, if something happened, really, if they had a, you know, the marching band was playing, as always happens at Cal Poly, uh, San Luis Obispo, the marching band is playing, it's homecoming day, the day of the September LSAT, you know, okay, great, then you should take the LSAT again. Um, And then if in December you have the flu, great, take the LSAT again. Um, and there's less pressure that third time and God forbid something happens that third time. It doesn't go well. Great. You can take the LSAT again now and couldn't have before, but I don't know. I mean, I think, I think showing good judgment is still going to matter. And, and I think that it's very hard to just because you're taking the LSAT more doesn't necessarily mean you're taking it better. What do you guys think? Yeah. You know, Anne, I actually, uh, first two things. One, feel free to say anything, uh, political Politically. on the show, yes, please. <laughs> Especially if it has to do with uh, Trump, I, I, oh. I think that guy's impossible not to. Oh my mock, gosh! But... I, I, whenever I go to Nathan's class, I say something, and you know, they, mostly they mostly they not along, but I always see that one guy hiding in the back who's like glaring at me. But um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay, thanks for that, Ben. Yeah, of course. Um, second, uh, so someone just emailed me the other day, and they had taken the test uh, twice last year and hadn't done as well as they would have liked. And they were planning to take it in June, and uh, they still feel like felt like they were <clears throat> a few points away from where they wanted to be. And so they're like, "Well, hey, maybe I should just take it in June and then take it again in September." Now that the this ban, if you will, has been lifted, and we're back to my re- wait. What we're back to politics talking about bans. Go ahead. That's right. <laughs> the old regime is gone, <laughs> and um, we were. I, my response or my my gut reaction, and I'm curious to see what you think, but I was like, I don't think you should take it. I, normally I'd say, hey, now it's not as big of a deal, but you've already taken it twice. If you take it again, kind of knowing that you're not really going to hit your goal and you're going to end up taking it again in September, now you just have a bunch of tests on your record. I think it would be better in this case to be a little more conservative and just wait and then take it when you feel like you really are ready so that you don't you know, just apply, like I think what you're saying, with a ton of tests on your record, even if they're all progressing upward, it just kind of looks like you jumped the gun in a lot of cases when you should have just been more thoughtful and and prepared. So my issue with what this person wrote to you is different. It's he's not where he wants to be or she is not where she wants to be yet Mm -hmm. on the score. So to me, that raises 
a couple of not red flags, but asterisks. So here's the thing. Some, this person has obviously been preparing for the LSAT for a long time and obviously has great resources if they're working with you. So what does that a few points lower than they'd really like mean? Does that mean a few points lower than they'd really like to be competitive at a certain law school? Or does that mean a few points lower than they really feel they can attain with additional preparation? Because, I, mm, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I, I feel like it's the latter, although I don't know because this was just a, a listener who who wrote in, but yeah. So that that's one thing that I worry about is people get the, and I've talked about this within a bunch of guys, uh, people get these goal scores in their head that sound pretty. And in the end, the difference between two or three points is not usually making a huge difference for most people in the outcomes of their applications. Um, and if they, if, if they're consistently getting, if they've prepped sufficiently, they've taken their eight plus 10 plus full length time practice tests, or they, they're, they're consistently see, you know, t- practicing, they're doing everything right. Right. Then just because they wish they were a few points higher, doesn't mean to me that I think it's attainable for them to get a few points higher. Um, I mean, you guys are the LSAT experts and maybe you disagree, but I think that someone who's really prepped and done everything right, just because they want to be a few points higher doesn't necessarily mean they can be. And so I might tell your person to take the LSAT in June um, because they're not using up their last try. And if it comes back, you know, they still have a a couple weeks. If it comes back that that it's close enough to where they want to be, I'd probably tell them, go ahead and apply early in the cycle and get going. And then if they're waitlisted and they want, you know, at a school and they want to retake the LSAT later, it'll still be available to them. Um, But, but, but in a different case where someone's score is really nowhere near where they need to be, need to be, not want to be, but nowhere near where they need to be to reach their goals, Mm -hmm. then I would say that person should not go ahead and take the LSAT. That person should wait. Um, But, you know, I think there's, those are two different situations. Yeah. Uh, About that latter point, uh, where they need to be, I think that's, that's one thing that's hard for a lot of people to figure out. And I find myself often wondering too, like, uh, what score do they really need to get into, you know, say George Washington or Georgetown or something like that? I feel like the numbers have been dropping. I, I don't know. Is the LSAC uh, GPA calculator a good place to start? Or it's is a that good starting point outdated? always. No, I, I don't think it's outdated. I think it's a good place to start. Um, it's. If, if a school takes 0% people with your LSAT score, I think that's a pretty good indication, right? Or 10% <laughs> or fewer, right? Yeah. Um, but if they're taking 40 to 70% of the people, then that's, that's pretty good, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty, pretty good odds with a strong application. I would say that with a strong GPA, there's more flexibility in exactly where your LSAT needs to be. GPAs do still matter. Um, but I would say that, you know, where does it need to be? I think that with that, I mean more someone who hasn't prepared, okay, hasn't put the work in for the LSAT, um, because where someone needs to be is going to be different based on their goals, and um, not everyone is going to be a Georgetown or GW person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that by putting the work into the LSAT, you figure out what what class you're going to be in, you know, what, what category you're going to be in. And then you max that out, right? You, you, you max out the best score you can possibly get. And then that determines which schools you're looking at. I mean, I have people all the time who contact me and and are basically, you know, T14 or bust. And then I tell them, well, what about Georgetown? What about Vanderbilt? What about UT Austin? And suddenly they're like, 
oh, wait, those aren't T14. Like they're drawing an, a line that doesn't exist, right? Yeah. So if someone is T14 or best, what score do I need to get there? I generally walk that person back a few steps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of, in terms of, you know, I, I just think there's a difference between someone deciding go ahead and taking the LSAT in June who hasn't fully prepared and someone who's prepared for a year, taking the test multiple times and still isn't as high as they'd like. I think those are very different cases. Hmm. Yeah. Right, to muddy, sense. yeah, to muddy the waters further. I mean, sure. it's not just about getting into X school. It's also Correct. about how much you're going to pay once you go Correct. there. So absolutely, uh, absolutely, um, and. There are some schools where a difference of two or three points makes a difference. Obviously, I want and you guys want and everybody wants to maximize their potential on the LSAT. That everyone understands that the more you maximize your potential on the LSAT, the better results you get in terms of admission and scholarships, of course. Um, but I think that's diff- you know, I think that the that max point is obviously different for everyone. And so that's why I give different advice on whether to retake the LSAT based on whether someone's really prepared or not. Yeah. Cool. All right. I don't think we have a clear answer there. Um, There's never a clear answer. No, because how close. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's just people think they're not, you know, how, we got to be close to our goal score. Well, one, there's a problem with setting any specific goal score in the first place. Two, uh, how close do you need to be to put yourself within really reasonable striking distance? I mean, maybe the only thing you can do is where everything else comes into play. Nathan, that's exactly right. Is some people have to be closer. Some people who don't have great grades from a good school or strong letters of rack or a great resume, those people need to be closer on the numbers. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, anything else, Ben, for Anne on that topic? No, no, very helpful. Thanks. Okay, yeah, this will be really interesting to see how it shakes out. It is going to be funny because we, we definitely are going to be having people who have taken it. I, I can't wait to talk to the first person who gets to double digits of yeah. attempts oh. on the LSAT. It's going to be amazing. This is going to be great for the LSAT industry, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I think it's going to be great for you guys. Um, you'll be buying a new hoodie, going from some more golf trips, Nathan. I, I think um, <laughs> I think this is going to be good because I think people who made mistakes in how they took the LSAT once or twice, which happens all the time, are going to get serious about it because they're going to be motivated. They're not just getting serious about it for one take, but they could potentially, you know, build on it. So I think, I think it'll be um, good for that. You know, so I want to, I wanted to talk to, to, uh, talk to you guys also about this new um, Harvard Law School uh, junior deferral program. Okay. And it leads into what we're just talking about a little bit. Um, uh, so basically what, what's, what's going on is, is Harvard has announced a new program starting this fall that juniors from any college, uh, not just Harvard, which is the change here, um, can apply for admission to Harvard Law School under this program as juniors, okay, and um, agree to, de- if they're admitted, agree to defer law school for two years after grade- graduation to work, and then they're guaranteed their spot at Harvard Law School after that two years. So this is a neat thing, okay, and... Um, and I've gotten, as soon as I started sharing this program uh, through social media, I started getting tons of inquiries about it. So I think it's something that's getting a lot of people really jazzed up. Um, it's going to be, the application has not yet been released. They're saying it's not going to be rolling admissions, but then they're saying they're going to review applications on a first come, first serve basis, <laughs> so whatever. And, um, and so I, and Harvard definitely operates on rolling admissions generally. So I think this is an interesting thing for people to be aware of. Um, 
because for a high achieving um, college student with a great GPA, who's already amassed an impressive resume and other things, who who definitely knows this is their trajectory, uh, is a Harvard Law School kind of <laughs> outcome. This gives them the opportunity to to find interesting, challenging work for two years after graduation, and knowing that they are set. And it, it's a pretty cool program. So, sorry, just to clarify, they they apply in the the whole like normal cycle, but uh, a year earlier, a year earlier, and basically, then once they get admitted, they're going two years after. Well, no, three years after that. Three right? years later, they would start. That's yep. correct. So it's it's a pretty cool thing. Um, and uh, you know, I think it'll be highly selective. And I think so. So this is the interesting thing is. I believe, I, I was just having a conversation with someone about this this week who's interested in that program, who's going to take the GRE because she's abroad and it's more accessible than the LSAT. But here's my thing, and this is what I told her as well. I believe that the it's still important to take the LSAT rather than the GRE, even in that situation, because to me, it shows you really do want to go to law school. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and I think for this program, that's something pretty important to show is that you already know you really want to go to law school. You're not going to be admitted to this program and say, oh, gosh, I don't want to go to law school. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, especially because you're applying when you're like, I don't know, 20. Right. So I think I think that that's going to be one of the interesting things that happens is um, whether there's it turns out there's any advantage to people who take the LSAT applying to that program versus the GRE. But I I'm still leaning toward the LSAT because I think it shows law schools you're serious about law school. Um, but this is an interesting program. I don't expect that they're going to take a hundred people through this program. You know, I think this is going to be pretty selective. Um, and even, you know, the program they've had for Harvard, um, college students to apply directly to the law school as juniors has been extremely competitive. I mean, I had a client a few years ago who went to Harvard undergrad who applied through that program, had like a low one seventies LSAT, everything strong and wasn't admitted through the deferral program. So, I mean, if it was that competitive, then it's going to be even more competitive now. But I think it's a neat opportunity for people to be aware of. They're taking a pretty big risk there on somebody who is pretty young, right? I mean, they have to think that they have an ability to forecast your future. So it does seem like they'd have to have a little bit higher standards there on a 20-year-old. Yeah, and this is not for the person who started their first year as a biology major and has an upward trend in grade story. This is not for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is for the person who's super strong right off the bat um, and, you know, super focused, you know, someone who's been, you know, an activist and, and you know, jumped in. This is not just, I, I don't believe this is going to be for the person who's simply, you know, on track to be president of their fraternity and whatever. Like, this is this is going to be for some pretty outstanding people who are, you know, going to take that time and be Fulbright scholars or what have you. So I think this is pretty interesting and, and just wanted to make sure your, your peeps were aware. Hey, yeah, that's awesome. Hey, Ben, um, if, if somebody was going to apply for this program, I assume at the beginning of your junior year. Yeah. But Ben, when do you uh, advise that they start their LSAT preparation? Oh, yeah. So... <clears throat> If they're applying at the beginning of their junior year, then they'd want to, at the latest, start prepping in February or March, I would think, of that year to get ready for the June LSAT. Dude, that's at the brutally latest, because that's going to give them one chance at the LSAT if they do it that way. I, just to be clear, like, so people who who are starting their junior year this fall and want to do this program, I would tell them to take the September LSAT. September 16th, right? And start studying now for that. 
Oh, okay. So you're, okay. that's right. Cause you, because you can take the September LSAT and still apply. That's correct. right. Correct. Okay. So you would take the September LSAT ideally. And, um, and so people who are learning about this program now are like, this is a good time to pivot and start working on LSAT for the summer and take it September 16th. That that's the timeline I would give. That's a, still a super tight timeline though. I mean, for, for realistic LSAT super, prep. Okay. These super, if you're enough of a superstar for them to look at you like this, then three months should be plenty of time on the LSAT. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, for many years, you guys, we told people three months was a perfectly fine amount of time to study for the LSAT. It's only in recent years that we're suddenly telling people four or five months is like somehow the standard. Oh, I don't know that I go with any standard. <laughs> I, I'm more yeah. like you need to plan for potentially taking the LSAT multiple times. Right. But these kids probably don't need to plan that. I mean, if these, these are the self-selecting superstars, okay, who are going to do this, they're probably pretty naturally good at standardized tests. Yeah, but I want to push back on that a little bit, though, Anne, because even if they're the kid who goes in with a really good chance of scoring, let's say, 173. 173, that sounds like a good number to get into this program, potentially, if you got your 4.0 and everything else. Okay, so 173, 174, something like that. That kid can easily score 169 some days and 177 some days. And 169 might not get it done where 174 would have. So that's right. why I, you know, I'd prefer that they were taking it. I mean, so now if I'm talking to a college sophomore or even a college freshman who is eyeing this program, all I'm saying is it's never too early to start working on the LSAT because, you know, you, then you give yourself multiple bites at the apple, potentially, hopefully yeah. you only take it once, but you well, could have a backup plan at least. Yeah, I want to, and I'm going to push back to your pushback a little. So okay. here's the thing. If, if someone it, it doesn't do well in September, as well as they like in September, they can take December for this program. Okay. But, but here's the thing. I don't want to have, be raising a whole group of college freshmen right now who are worried about the LSAT. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, I think that's like, and maybe this is the mom in me, um, more than the law school expert in me perhaps, but I, I don't think that's a good thing for a college freshman to be worried about. I've already had one mother of a college freshman contact me about the Harvard deferral program. I, I don't think this is right. I, I think college should be about exploring your passions and interest. And I don't care who your parents are, or what they do for a living. If they're both lawyers, and you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. I don't think freshman year of college, sophomore year of college should be spent focused on LSAT. I think it should be figuring out who the hell you are, what you want to study, what you want to do, what interests you. I, I think you should be failing at things. I think you should be trying new things and meeting new people. Okay. I'm sorry, but I think we can't skip that step of, of life. And um, if worse comes to worse, someone waits until fall of their junior year, winter of their junior year, take the LSAT, and they don't get into Harvard deferral program, not at the end of the world. Okay. So what? So they wait they finish college and they apply to law school afterward like everybody else. I mean, this is just not a big deal. And I, I don't want to be part of a system that throws kids into this rat race where they're thinking about LSAT when they're 18. I also think that people do better on the LSAT once they've had upper level collegiate work. Okay. That they've had those higher level econ courses or art history courses or whatever analytical courses. And someone who's still taking, you know, 100 level courses is not going to be as prepared as for the LSAT and the reading comp and, and everything else as someone who's further along in their academic studies. So I don't want to be a person who's pushing them to take it earlier. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't want him to go to law school in the first place, so that that's fine. <laughs> there's there's issues with that and what you do, Nathan. Like that requires counseling <laughs> for them because they want to go to law school. Yeah, for I, you who like every day is telling people how best to get into law school, and there you go. Yeah, we, we need to talk about that off the record. Hey, the people that I can really help the most are the most crazy people. I mean, the the people who are really insane enough to go be lawyers. That's the people that I love helping get into law school. But yeah. Every Everybody else, I'm happy to say, don't do this. Do anything else. Yes, go explore your interests. Go find things that are going to be passionate about. Um, I'm all in on that message for sure. Um, in, in other news, oops, my my uh, dog is telling me to move on. Um, in other news, um, there's rumblings that Northwestern is also going to start looking at GRE scores. Nothing official. Okay, that's We're just rumbling up with three law schools. What 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 do you mean by rumblings? Like, well, do they... I read a couple articles that they're considering it. I haven't read anything that says they're definitively now going to accept the GRE instead of the LSAT. Huh. But I've read a couple things saying that they're thinking about it. Hmm. Um, and Northwestern floats weird ideas like two year law school that later doesn't pan out. So I mean, um, but anyway, so so that's just adding a third law school to the mix. And and you know, I know we're tallying this because Ben thinks this is all going to happen suddenly and. <laughs> And maybe it's going to happen faster than I originally thought, but it's still just trickling in. But that's number three law, three law schools now, University of Arizona, Harvard, and perhaps Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, what else is on your mind, guys? Well, Anne, I saw your tweet this morning uh, you, that the, I guess it's new above the law, law school rankings. Make up words like our president? <laughs> of the through, what is that? I don't know. Okay. Yes. So it, um, above the law blog, um, just came out. And if, if your listeners don't already do above the law, I think it's a must, must, uh, subscribe, uh, must follow, uh, for anyone applying to law school. So, uh, they're a little snarky, but, uh, but it's good stuff. So they come up with their own rankings based primarily on employment outcomes. Okay. As opposed to um, taking into account like the number of volumes in the library and the LSAT scores and GPAs of entering applicants, right? They're looking pretty much at outcomes. And I, I love this. Um, you know, I, I think that this is really um, more focused on what should matter. Right. And so take a look, they only rank the top 50, but there's definitely a, a very different top, uh, top five than in some of then in the U S news rankings, which I think is so interesting. Um, and, and it's a good, good thing to look through. And it's always good to look at things through a different lens and, and rank law schools a little differently. Um, there's, there are some very good law schools out there that are never going to make it high up in U S news because they take chances on, on people with lower numbers, right? Well, that's always going to put them at a disadvantage there, but it doesn't put them at any disadvantage with above the law. So I just wanted to point, point that out to people. Yeah, you you actually well you tweeted that the above the law rankings are better than the U.S. news better. rankings. I hate U.S. news. There's nothing good about U.S. news. I mean, the repu- the way they do the reputation ranking, right? Sending surveys to people who have been out of law school for 50 years and haven't hired anyone in 50 years. I mean, this whole I I, I didn't like U.S. news when I was a director of admissions, and I don't like it anymore now. Um, we're stuck with it. I understand that law schools are forced to play into it. But I don't think it helps legal education. I don't think it's a great tool for applicants. Um, and I think it just is a self-perpetuating elitism that is without meaning. Um, and, and I think that the, anyone who's looking at law schools with a different lens that's 
weighing things that should be more important to people actually applying to law school is a good thing. So yes, I will go out and say that I think ATL is better than U.S. News. Shots Brian fired. Leiter, Brian well, Leiter is better than U.S. News. Pretty much anything, I think, would be better than U.S. <laughs> News unless they're ranking them based on something I wholly disagree with um, or improperly, you know, best law school party schools or whatever. I don't, I, I won't endorse those over U.S. News, but but so far these, yes, better than U.S. News. Can we talk about some of the big differences uh, between, I, I, I just quickly scanned the above the law rankings, but am yeah. I correct that USC was not listed in that top uh, 50? I, no, I, um, I didn't pull it up in front of me uh, for this call uh, because when I have my browsers open while I'm on Skype, then you don't hear me very well. So I don't have it in front of me. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I don't recall about USC, but there are some good ones in there. There's university of Alabama still in there and, um, and they'd fallen out of, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, with us news, but they're, they're doing here. Emory like barely made the cut on, uh, above the law. Um, and, uh, you know, university of Chicago's right up there. Harvard's not as high up there as you would think. <laughs> so there's some really, there's, it's, it's worth a read. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, sorry. I I just think this is um this is really interesting. So they, I completely agree with you. I mean, they say what matter what doesn't matter to us? LSAT scores, GPA, student scholarships. This is what you were just saying. What does matter to us? Real law jobs, quality full time positions, cost and debt, alumni satisfaction. That's why we're going to law school, right? We're going to law school to get something out of it, not to. Uh, bask in the joy of law school well i mean some people might be but that's that's or just, just to a, get to wear a sweatshirt that has a fancy name on it as i like he, to say yeah it, i feel like it's a means to an end or at least it should be for anyone who's going to fork out that kind of money or time um and you said that it ranks only the top 50 according to their criteria right and i'm i'm I looking at so. yeah i'm looking at a list of 50 right now and it's interesting because it says uh on this page of those who graduated in 2015 did not secure a job in the law. So here are the exact numbers. 59% got real law jobs. 28% got some other type of job. 10% were unemployed and 3% were uh, in law school funded positions. Okay, but that's not just, are those statistics for law schools overall or for the top 50? I think that's for the top 50, which... um, Really? Well, I'm not looking at it, so I'll, I'll trust your judgment. I guess it says total law grads 39,000, so 40,000 40, Yeah, no, that's grads. not the top 50. That's all law okay, schools. Okay, so that's all law schools. I, yeah. So when I saw this and I thought this was for the top 50, I was like, that is really bad. Yeah, that would be really bad if that were the top 50, but it's not. And 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 you can bet that the, the majority of, those, um, of the sucky part of those statistics is not from the top 50 that they've rated. Yeah, okay. Because if you even look at the numbers they provide, like that math wouldn't work. Okay, cool. Still, yeah, this is good. It's got—I mean, it's got a lot of the top schools in there still. That, uh, but a lot of schools that you would never, I think, think of. Yeah, and I love that. I totally love that. And and I don't—I'm not someone who thinks that. Um, I, look, I, I have tons of people who go to top law schools every year. It's not that I'm against it, but I don't think it's the one and only way, depending on what people's goals and, and objectives are and, and passions are. And uh, so I, I love anything that um, 
helps applicants look at this through a different lens and not just fall into step with with what they're being told um, based on the U.S. news um, parade, you know, uh, followers. So I, I think it's a good thing. Um, it's just all of this has been so funny to me um, because, as you guys know, you know, I've been rewriting the law school admission game. It's time for a third edition. It's been four years, right? People deserve a more updated law school guidebook, and you guys have been great giving me some LSAT tips for that. And I, um, I put this to bed before my vacation and I sent it for, for, to the editor, uh, for editing. The whole thing was done. I would recorded 98% of it for the audiobook, and then all this stuff came up. So I'm going back in the sound studio tomorrow to, to fix some things that have to be updated. And I had to redo uh, complete sections of, of the book. And so, um, I'll be writing a little bit more about pretty much everything we've talked about today and, and in, incorporating that in the new version. So that should be out mid July. Wow. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, and we don't want to take up your whole morning. Uh, anything else you want to add? How do people get in touch with you? Uh, lawschoolexpert.com can fill out a contact form there and I get back to everyone personally and, and I'm happy to do that. Let me tell people, let me know that they uh, listen to the podcast and you guys are doing great. I can't believe you're already in like 96 something episodes. So if I can do anything for you for 100 and, and give you some freebies or something, let me know. Yeah, we have to Thanks. think. We have to make a plan. It's coming up. Do something man. awesome. hundred. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Good luck, guys. Thanks for okay. having me. Thanks a lot, and talk to you soon. See ya. So back to the agenda. Uh, ben, you want to read this first email on the list here? Yeah, certainly. Nathan and Ben, circling back here quickly to update you. Thanks so much for the helpful discussion on the podcast regarding school choices. A few weeks ago, I even ran into a friend of a friend who had listened to that episode and knew my story. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. We must have um uh, we must be reaching more than 5 people now. Yeah, we're up to like 10. 10. Yeah, at least if you're going to have a friend of a friend recognize <laughs> your story. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um crazy small world here in DC. And you guys have quite an audience. Well done. Thanks. Um, That's cool. Uh, Update number two. I pressed pen for some sort of merit aid and to no avail. Uh, Okay. So, oh, this, so this, this, this wonderful listener had gotten into pen, but no scholarship. And I think uh, we had suggested to at least try to get some sort of scholarship and she did that and and was not successful. But she went back to George Mason uh, University, which had given her some scholarship and a she full ride. Them. They had given her a full tuition offer. Oh, they had given her a full ride. Okay. Yep. Um, she pressed Mason for more aid, had a full tuition offer by noting my full tuition offers in Philly, a cheaper city, and they came back with a stipend offer. Uh, that is really cool. That's like the greatest news I've ever heard. I mean, that is just, that is just amazing. Uh, yeah. I, boy, do I love hearing that. Thank you very much, uh, for that update specifically. Uh, we love hearing negotiation stories. Um, of course the law schools are going to hate us for talking about all this, but that's, that's, that's how it's done right there, folks. She, she had a full tuition offer and she asked them for more money and they gave it to her. Yeah. And, and notice she did point out that she had a full tuition offer in Philly and yeah. that it was in a cheaper city. So she yeah. had a reason, right? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's all you need. Lawyers love evidence. We need to be using evidence in our arguments. And she had evidence. I mean, she, she got that evidence for herself by applying broadly 
and you know she probably had negotiated with them as well right uh, well that's what she she's she's she sounds like she's just negotiating with multiple schools and she gets this really great offer for full tuition in Philly and then she's yeah now she's able to get a living stipend from Mason uh because of that bar puts her in a better bargaining position. So this is just incredible. Well done. Congratulations. Yeah. Hey, uh, this reminds me of an email I just got yesterday, actually, from a former student who wanted a quick favor. And she said, I have an additional question that I completely understand might not be possible, but I'd figure I'd hazard an ask. And it turns out her request <laughs> was rather mild. And I was like, yeah, no problem. And um, I like the phrase, uh, I figured I'd hazard an ask. And, and that's what, you know, it may feel like <laughs> you're going to ask them for more money. You feel like you're taking that risk and it's a little awkward. But, boy, I mean, if she hadn't have asked, they would have been totally happy to not give her a stipend and yeah. to keep her in her full tuition scholarship yep. and think that she was happy. And I'm sure she would have been happy. But... Uh, yeah. That reminds me of, I, I frequently compliment people or I, when someone asks me, like say someone asks me for, uh, I'll get, you know, cause I'll get, this, I'll get this same strategies used against me, right. Where people ask yeah. me for like a discount on whatever. And I basically tell everybody no, uh, unless there's some extreme circumstances where your finances, you know, whatever I, I do, sure. I do have a soft spot every once in a while, but I mostly tell people no. And, but I do frequently, uh, say good ask <laughs> when people, yeah. or even when I, if I'm around in the world and I hear somebody ask for something, um, if I, I love it. Cause I, it's like, I know that they're probably going to get shut down, but there's every once in a while where it's just, I hear somebody ask for something and then I go, <laughs> and then I go, Oh yeah. Well, good ask though. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. it's great that you asked that question because sure they're going to say no, but maybe they say yes sometimes. <laughs> why not? Especially, especially <laughs> if you me, do it. Not? Yeah. Why not? And especially if, uh, you're, you're nice about it. You know, sometimes people yeah. are just like annoying and you're like, okay, get out of here. Yeah. But, um, quick anecdote, yeah. quick, quick side. Okay. So I'm, I'm stuck on a Southwest airlines flight. Um, you know how they sometimes do that thing where you, I barely make it on the plane and I take one of the last seats and they push back and then we get the delay on the runway before taking off. Do you know that one? It's okay. The worst. Yeah, I got you. You're you're like running and you're 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 uh, breathing heavily, and you finally get your seat, and it's like sitting and stopping. Well, and the, just the delay on the runway before taking off, like the yeah. hey, we just got news from the tower that there's a you know because I'm in Oakland or something, and sure. it's like we just got the the notice from the tower in Los Angeles that uh, they're having a terminal construction delay there. And so they're not going to have room for us to land for uh, another 50, 50 minutes. So we're going to be waiting oh. here on the tarmac in Oakland for 50 minutes. Oh, that's awful. Oh, those are the worst. That That's the delay. That's the worst. Cause it just doesn't even feel like you're making progress, you know? And, yeah. and then I'm sitting there thinking, God damn it. I wish I would have missed this flight so that I would have just been waiting in the bar for the next flight instead of sitting here waiting on this plane. That's not going to take off until basically the same time as the next plane takes off anyway. So whatever, I'm, I'm frustrated with the delay of course, but, uh, I do my move, which is I stand up and I go, I go stand in the back of the plane. Cause I hate sitting. I have like back problems. I'm an old man. And I, so I hate sitting. So I want to be standing. So I'll go yeah. stand in the back of the plane at least where I can stretch my legs and um, not be miserable there sitting in the seat. And sure. 
as I'm standing in the back of, of the plane, then of course there's a flight attendant back there. And so I'm kind of chatting to the flight attendant and, uh, then I'm watching the parade of dudes going back there to the flight attendant asking if they can get booze. <laughs> just, just, it was, it was hilarious because it was like four or five different guys. And I get to watch how they kind of sidle up and I get to see their, their various approaches for how they, how they try to go it to go for the ask. And that's when I was definitely telling people good ask because those <laughs> flight attendants are not serving you before the plane takes off. They do not, yeah. they do not do that. And, uh, it's like just FAA regulations. They just can't do it before you take off. And yeah. so, but what I'm, was the, what was the best one? I, you know, I, I wish I remembered. I wish I remembered. Cause you know, like some, uh, sort of like, uh, They'll ask for a beer. She says no. Okay, well then, how about a just a bottle, a airline bottle of Jack Daniels? I'll just drink it right here. It'll, it'll, it'll the whole thing will take five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the time, the time matters. <laughs> well, because the no one else will see. You see, because uh, it, it would yeah. be like a, it'll be private. It would be between yeah. that flight attendant and this dude and just me because I'm standing there smirking, <laughs> like just laughing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, okay, sorry. That was, funny. That was a long aside. No, 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 that's good. So she concludes, at the end of the day, I know myself and my debt-adverse nature, and I took Nate's advice, free is free, and free plus a stipend is even better. I'll be heading to Mason in August. Congratulations, smiley-faced. Again, thanks again so much for your assistance throughout this process, both in prepping for the LSAT and beyond. I hope you both... Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Well, we already we did. did. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So thanks very much for this update. Uh, you know, I also, I emailed her back and said, hey, can we, you know, is this is slightly sensitive? Is it, is it cool if we talk about all this on the show? And, yeah. or if, if she minds. And she says, not at all. I think it's important that people know law schools are now more than they used to be, from what I read, willing to negotiate offers. Granted, I anticipated pushback and sent GMU a cited government cost of living report with my request. <laughs> wow, that's, that's serious. But they never would have given me the stipend if I didn't ask. That's the most important part, I think. I, you know, that just absolutely. What, what is their motivation for giving her a stipend? Um, you know, that they, they, had, they had already made her a very fine offer. Would you like to come to our law school for free? And yeah. she said, mm, I'm not sure. How about you pay me to go to your law school? And they said yes. And so now they're yeah. going to be paying part of her living. But the, I love the, gover- the, the government cost of living report. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It is sort of interesting. I wonder what their incentive is. I guess they're trying to get top candidates to improve their U.S. News and World Report ranking or just – I mean, they're not, it's not like they're filling a seat and getting paid for it. No, they, that's why people are getting, that's why you get a full ride is because the school thinks that you're going to raise the reputation of the school. Yeah. But they, they're like, shit, our bar passage rate is terrible. <laughs> we think <laughs> this person is going to pass the bar for sure. You know, but like they can yeah. tell, they can tell, they know you're going to pass the bar. That's why they're giving you a full ride. Yeah. Or, you know, they, your numbers, your LSAT score, your GPA are going to raise the profile of the school and help them to play that, uh, law school rankings game. 
that that they care about so much because all of everybody else cares so much about the rankings. Yeah. And so here what we have is a candidate who's going to a slightly lower ranked school um but is going for free and with a with a living stipend to help to, you know, make up the living the cost of living difference. Yeah. And presumably she's going to be happier in in DC than in Philly. Or I don't know. I'm hoping that she's also happy about well, the place where she's going to live for three years. I don't. I don't know anything about Philly, but I would not want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I just have a I have an aversion to Philly. Yeah, the only thing I know about Philly is, um, let's see, from it's always sunny in Philadelphia, which is a hilarious show, but that does not make you want to live in Philadelphia, and also from Rocky. Yeah, which is a great movie. Uh, so I wanted to give you an update. This is from Norm, fake name. I wrote in a while back asking whether I should apply to law school. Basically, whether you thought I even had a shot. Per your advice, I registered for the June test right before the deadline. I've been studying using Nathan's books, Ben's test tracker, and a lot of thinking LSAT. And now I've scored perfect scores, no questions missed on three of my last five timed tests. Jesus. Wow. Okay, well, uh, I would suggest not going to law school at this point and becoming an LSAT instructor. You can <laughs> good money and have a good life. I can't guarantee those things for law graduates. <laughs> um, unless I get sick or something crazy... I feel super confident about the upcoming test, and I'll be in great shape if I even get within 10 points of my practice course. Yeah, you guys have changed the course of my life. I am pledging to donate $1 to the Thinking LSAT for each question I get correct on the real test as thanks. Hmm. Raw score, not scaled score, because if I fail, I I don't think it's fair for someone who scores zero to be on the hook for $120. Cuz that's the lowest score you can get even if yeah. you get zero questions correct. Yeah. yeah, okay, fair enough. So we <laughs> if he keeps his track record up, we might be getting $100 from Norm. That's good. Cool. We're rich. Yeah. We might uh we might scale back on our classes too then, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I can I can retire on that. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, no, that'd be huge, uh, Norm. I think that'd be the he- uh, largest donation in uh, thinking LSAT history. Even if you get ten wrong, ninety dollars, that would be the largest donation in history for us. Yeah, and and the the unfortunate thing is that see the way he set this this offer up, we don't even really care that much about his score because like ninety is just almost as good as a hundred. So it, it makes a huge difference. Those ten questions make a huge difference to him, but for us, it's like pennies but anyway thanks so much for the generous offer that's that's amazing yeah he should have made uh, it like um i ten dollars per question over 90 that's what he really yeah 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 so you get you get nothing if you get a 170 yeah or something like that yeah, yeah. 10 if you get a 171 that'd be interesting yeah. i'll update you once i get a score and apply yep Cool. We're looking forward to it. And you don't have to read this on the podcast or anything. Sorry, we just did. I wanted to say thanks. If you do read it, read it. don't use my real name. We didn't. We called you Norm. Okay. Cool, man. That's exciting. Hey, um, so I guess this should become like the norm now. If you listen to a podcast, you give us a dollar 
for every point you get on the actual test. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a standard like suggested donation. Yeah. No, 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 not suggested. That's that's too weak. This is required. It's a required donation. Required donation. If you don't pay it, <laughs> we're gonna find your IP address. We're gonna come knocking on your doors personally. We'll just start hitting the doors. Yeah, Sarah. Sarah, we noticed that you got um, a one thirty-five on the uh, recent LSAT, and do your. your if your you get a one thirty-five, I think we owe you money. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to give you our twenty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Here's the next one. Um, hi, Ben and Nathan. First, I want to thank you for all the great content you put out. Thanks for your discussions regarding the logical reasoning section i'm sending i'm seeing tremendous improvements in my score i'm able to pretty consistently get the first 15 questions in a section correct that's awesome if you can get for 15 out of 15 that means you are getting it that's awesome 15 out of 15 is awesome um however as the section goes on i usually miss a good number of questions from 18 through 25 okay and right there my hypothesis is why are you finishing the section you're if you're missing that many between 18 and 25 i think probably you just need to do a few less slow down and you know your next step needs to be hey if you're getting 15 out of 15 that's amazing how about let's shoot for 20 out of 20 now and it, it's it's just a, it's so frequent that you see people who can do well in the in the early going and then they just completely fall off at the end. Uh, and I feel like that's people who are just getting a little bit ahead of themselves and uh, kind of shooting for a little too much. Yeah. Um. Anyway, one question type in particular that trips me up late in the section is principal questions. I'm having a tough time recognizing when the principal question is a quote must be true or a strengthen or a justify question. Um, for example, the question stem says, which one of the following principles, if valid, most strongly supports the reasoning above? I got this question wrong partly because I approached it like a must be true question. Well, I mean, not partly because you approached it as a must-be-true question. <laughs> let's let's talk about that question stem, Ben. Which one of the following principles, if valid, most strongly supports the reasoning above? What type of question is that? That is a strengthened question. Yes, sir. That is a strengthened question. I, I don't think there is any such thing really as a principle question, or at least I don't think it's very useful to think about principle questions. Just because it says the word principle in that question stem, I don't think that creates a new category of question. I think uh, they are asking, it, basically, pr you can substitute their principles for um, things or statements or facts, really. You know, which one of the following things, if valid, so if true, so which one of the following five, if true, most strongly supports the reasoning above? And I don't know, Ben. Is there a trick there or do you just have to read the whole thing and figure out what it means? <clears throat> I think you have to read the whole thing and figure out what it means. And that's true for so many question types. People yeah. zero in on one word <sighs> and they're like, it says properly inferred. So therefore mm. it must be a must be true question or it must be an inference question or whatever you want to call it. And it's like, yeah, but what must be properly inferred? The answer choice? 
below or the the conclusion in the argument above. Those are two radically different things and thus two radically different goals. And in one case, you're looking for a weak answer. In another case, you're looking for a strong answer. And so if, if you don't have the right question type and thus the right goal, uh, yeah, you're going to get these questions wrong. And the yeah. only reason you're going to get them right is if you don't understand what's going on or um, your mind like saves you. You're like, wait, 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 mm, this doesn't seem right. And your mind's like subconsciously telling you to stop making the mistake that you're making. But here's the thing. I agree with you 100%. I don't think there's really a point in calling question types principal questions. I can right. understand what he's saying. He's basically saying questions that have the word principal in them. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can associate any principal question with another question type and then apply the strategies that would be relevant to that type. And the two most common ones are strengthened questions, which we're looking at right now, and then uh, must-be-true questions. And in the, and the key here is this one says, which one of the following principles, if valid? So it's saying, hey, which one of the following answers, if it were true? It's asking you to assume that the answers are true and then figure out which one does the most to help the passage. The, and I would call this – wait, what? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I would call this a bottom-up question because the answer choices, well, at least or one of them, is supporting the passage above – yeah. versus a top-down question where they say something like, if the statements above are true, uh, which one of the following principles is most strongly supported by them? That's a top-down question because you're being asked to assume that the passage is true and uh, what answer is supported by <clears throat> the passage, right? Yeah, are we and, assuming that the passage is true and then trying to identify which answer choice also must be true based on the passage? Mm-hmm. Or are we uh, trying to support the passage by picking, hey, if one of these five answers, the one I pick, if that is valid, will it support the information above? Exactly. And that's what we're looking at here. This is definitely a strengthened question. But all you have to do is change a couple words here and you can change it into a different question type. For example, if I had said, which one of the following principles, if valid, justifies the reasoning above. Yeah. Then now what type of question is it? That would be a sufficient assumption question. Why? Because instead of looking for the answer that most strongly or most justifies the reasoning above, you're looking for the one that does justify the reasoning above. And so it's basically a strengthened question on steroids. Correct. Yeah. The, the, and frequently, even on this type of question, which <clears throat> the question stem as it is, is a strengthened question. Which one of the following principles, if valid, most strongly supports the reasoning above? Well, I would frequently go into those answer choices looking for a sufficient assumption of the argument. There's no better strengthener than a sufficient assumption, right? A sufficient assumption is the strengthener on steroids that you're talking about. Yeah. So, and Let's, oh, if it's okay, just for a half second, let me define sufficient assumption because I think that can help. I think that those terms, like, you know, people hear them and it, it doesn't sink in what we're yeah. exactly saying. We're saying, look, this assumption and an assumption is just an unstated premise. In other words, this piece of evidence, which wasn't in the original argument, is sufficient to now make that conclusion true. And sufficient just means enough. So you don't need anything else. If you add this to your argument, it will be enough. It will be sufficient 
to prove the conclusion. And that's what the LSAT means by a sufficient assumption. That's it. This is all you need. And now, along with the other premises, premises that they've already provided, now the conclusion has to be true. Yeah, and that's a very important concept on the, uh, you know, for for the LSAT generally, you have to know what it looks like when an argument has been proven. That's what sufficient assumption is about. It's like, hey, make this bulletproof. Make it so that we win like summary judgment. We don't have to go to trial because if all these facts are true and if this one answer choice is also true, then it forces the conclusion to be true so that we don't have anything else to argue about here. Yeah. That's what it means. That's what sufficient assumption really means. So Mm -hmm. just because it says the word principle doesn't mean anything. When it says which one of the following principles, if valid, justifies the reasoning above, then you would be looking for something that would fully justify, fully prove the conclusion. Yep. This question stem, instead of justifies, it says most strongly supports. So then that is a softer, like they're asking you, hey, you don't have to necessarily prove the conclusion of the argument. You just have to help the argument as much as you can. Again, I would still be hoping to find a sufficient assumption as an answer choice because there's that's the best possible way to strengthen an argument is to make it win. Right. But if I don't find a sufficient assumption in the answer choices, then I'll just pick the best of the answers, which one helps us the most. Yeah. And, and and that last point is really important too, because so many times I feel like complaints I get about weaken or strengthen answers are something like this. Well, I don't really feel like that uh, hurts the conclusion or I don't really feel like that strengthens the argument or the conclusion. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. I agree with you <laughs> that maybe this answer, which is correct, doesn't do very much, if at all. It, it does very, very little. But we're looking for the answer that strengthens it the most. And therefore, you have to point to another answer choice that strengthens it more. Yeah, right. And that's where they start. Th- that's where you start dealing with the tests and what's actually going on here. And they're like, "Oh, well, yeah, I just, I just really didn't like this answer. I don't. So what? That's fine. I hate the like other the four more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. It doesn't do that much, but it does something. And yeah. now we're feeling a little bit more warm and fuzzy about the conclusion. Not a whole lot." but that's all we need. And that's what that word most does. Yeah. To continue with that line of reasoning. I mean, again, of course we go into the answer choices looking for a sufficient assumption. If we can find a sufficient assumption, then it's game over. That's the answer. We win, we move on. Right. Yep. But if we don't find a sufficient assumption, if we don't find the perfect premise that makes us win our case, then we just look for, Hey, which one of these five helps the case the most? Some of them are going to hurt the case. Those are out. Yep. Some of them are going to be just irrelevant to the case. Those are out. Yep. And we might find that there's only one that is at least along the same lines as what we were saying. Yeah. And if we can hate the other four, then we can definitely pick this one. I, I was I can't remember the question, but I was working with a question that was like this last night where it was just like, you know, yeah, it really doesn't do that much. But let's think about this for a second. Suppose you ha- you're forced, you're writing a legal brief here, right? You're writing a brief to the court about why you should win your case, why your client should win. And you have uh, already some uh, stuff. You've got your the, the passage. You've got the stimulus. Uh, that's, part, that's your brief. Yep. And now you are forced, you're forced to include A, B, C, D, or E in this brief. Which one of these five 
if you were forced to pick one of these five to put it into your brief, which one of these five is the one that you're going to pick? And and sometimes that's going to help you to, okay, well, you know, they all suck. But boy, these ones actually hurt my case. And these ones, it's really hard to see how they are even related to my case. Yeah. And, oh, I see this one. It, at least it seems to be on the right track. It, okay, it doesn't make me win automatically. It's not earth-shattering. This isn't going to be the linchpin of my whole argument. But it's, it's, it's hey, it's a half a step in the right direction. And sometimes that's the best, that's the best you've got there in those five answers. So you got to be, I guess, flexible on your thinking when you go into a strengthen question. Yeah, you've been asked to make a case yeah. for Mr. Trump. Yeah. And <laughs> you don't have many good options sometimes. Yeah. Right. And you just cl- got to pick the best one. Absolutely. You know, still got hair or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, your client can sometimes be an idiot. And you have to still, that's your job. You have to make the best case you can for your idiot client. And so the argument can be terrible and the answer choices can also be terrible. But one of the answer choices at least sort of arguably moves the case forward. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the one you have to pick if there's nothing better. Again, I wouldn't go in looking for that. That's not the way to approach the question. The way to approach the question is go in looking, you know, high standards. I want to win this shitty case. I'm going to look for a sufficient assumption of this shitty argument. And you can almost always predict one, right? If they have evidence at all, and if they have a conclusion, then you can always predict an answer that just sounds like, well, if this exact evidence is true, which it is, then this exact conclusion must be true. That would be a yeah. perfect answer because it bridges the gap between the evidence and the conclusion and it makes you win your case. So that's like kind of always what I'm thinking on a strength in question. Yeah. Um, it, then if I find that, great. But if I don't, then yeah, I have to be flexible and I have to just take the next best thing. Yeah. Hey, random side note here. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> if a question says, which am I following – if true, most strongly supports the argument above, or which one of the following, if valid, most strongly supports the argument above, or yeah. which one of the following, if assumed, most strongly supports the argument above. Yeah. Those all, those three uh, prompts are all the same question. It doesn't matter whether you say if valid, if true, or if assumed. Those all mean the same thing. Now, there's a trend on the test for the test writers to use if valid when they use the word principle. And there's a trend to use the word if assumed when they're talking about um, a sufficient assumption question. But that's that's not really the deciding factor. That's only telling you whether it's a top-down or a bottom-up question, right? But then the language that comes after that tells you whether you're looking for like a strengthened question or a sufficient assumption yeah, question. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. If valid if true, and if assumed, those do absolutely nothing different from one another. Those are the exact same, if valid, if true, if assumed, that's the same shit. That's just if true. Which one of the following if true? Yep. And which one of the following principles, that principles doesn't do anything either. It's just which one of the following things, which one of the following answer choices, Mm -hmm. if valid, if true, if assumed. Yeah, okay, that all means the same thing. (laughs) Which one of these five, if it's true, is going to help. Well, here it says most strongly support the reasoning above. So, okay, let's talk about the other type of question because where people I think really get tripped up here 
is when the question turns out to be a must be true question. But what does that sound like? So can you give us a question stem, Ben, that uses the word principle? Not that that does anything, but what's a question stem using the word principle that turns out to be a must be true question? What does that sound like? Yeah. So in the examples we were just talking about, the the if valid or if true or if assumed all referred to the answer choices. Right. In a must be true question, that if clause is actually going to refer back to the passage. So, for example, um, you could actually even have something that said, like, if the principle illustrated in the passage above is true, or if the statements above are true, yep. which one of the following principles? Uh, could be properly inferred. I don't know if I've mm-hmm. ever seen that with principles, but um, I mean, that would be a must-be-true question. You could also just say, uh, if the statements above are true, which one of the following principles is most strongly supported by them? Uh, the, notice the if is referring to the passage, not to the answer choices. And uh, the test writers are saying, look, don't dispute anything in the passage, except that all is true, and tell me now what must be true yeah. in one of the five answers. I think people are to, – because to go on into Justin, the, the next paragraph here of Justin's email, it indicates that he is way in the weeds, right? I mean he, he's clearly not thinking about this correctly because he, here's his next question. Is this question a justify question because it says most strongly supports? Yeah. Well, no. I mean – the question stem, which we've talked about at length, is a strengthen question stem. The most strongly supports would actually never be a justify the conclusion or sufficient assumption question. Most strongly supports means it there's room, there's a little leeway there, which means that it's just going to be probably a strengthen question. But your biggest problem is that you're looking for keywords, right? I mean, please let me know if I'm on the right track here. Are there other keywords in the stem that can indicate when a principal question is a strengthen, justify, or must be true? I don't, I think, I, I really think you're getting way too caught up in the idea that one or two words is going to tell you what type of question this is. That is absolutely not the case. You need to read. So, wait, hold on. Yeah. So here, here's the problem, right? Like words matter, but it's still, it's the totality of the yes. words together. It's like Jane sees spot run is completely different than spot sees Jane run, even though you have the same four words. It's like, how are those words put together? Um, Sure, it matters whether you say most supports or justify by itself without the word most, but not in isolation, in combination. Right. And, you know, so things like just because the question says the word depends – that does not automatically mean that it's a necessary assumption question. I mean, we got to read yeah. the entire rest of the answer uh, oh, or of yeah, that question sure. stem because they do throw some curveballs with the question stems. I've been noticing that recently that there's some there's some question stems where I take a moment, right? Where I go, "Hmm. Boy, what type of question is this really?" And I'll yeah. I'll have to think about it a bit and then I'll it, it, almost always it turns out to be a must be true <laughs> in that in that case, but it's it's like you got to read every single word. And the idea that keywords are going to do it for you here is just not, you're, you're, no, you are not, Justin, on the right track here. You need to read the entire question stem. I think the biggest dividing line here, though, to get back to the original question, which is, you know, justify, uh, sorry, um, principle questions broadly. 
they are either must be trues or they are in the strength and slash sufficient assumption family. Yeah. And the big, the big dividing line, again, you already said this, Ben, but I'm going to say it again. The big dividing line is you have to read the whole question stem and you have to determine, are they asking you to assume that the passage is true and then find an answer choice that has to be true based on the passage Mm -hmm. or are they asking you, are they telling you that, hey, one of these five answer choices is going to help the passage above to be true? So the the top down or bottom up thing that you were talking about, that's the big, I think that's the first biggest dividing line, right? Is just, hey, yep. what are you asking me to do here? Yep. And uh, boy, it's not really related to <laughs> keywords or any one phrase. It, it's it's going to be the entire question stem. Yeah. Okay. I think we beat that one into the ground. Sure. I, (laughs) not to, uh, let's just, let's go a little further. (laughs) Great. Awesome. I love to beat dead horses. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, when you're winning, you know, you just got to stick in that territory. Um, I'm looking for this question. It always messes people up and, um, it does require a little bit of thinking. I'm just looking at the, looking for the prompt and I'm just going to have to go from memory if I can't find it here. I know it's in the, it's in the green book. Um, so it's that one that has to do with the psychologist, you know, uh, providing help on the air. Okay. Does that ring a bell? Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Yeah, there's something about, yeah, I mean, you can't, you're going to just read the question stem. Yeah, okay. Yeah, hold on. So Yeah, I'm just going to read the question stem. And oh, okay, I just found it. So, in any case, this one always messes people up, and I. But I think it's really good. Um, I just just found it. Here we go. Okay, so I'm gonna read the question stem. You tell me what type you think this is. It says, "Oh, and it's got principle in it. Even better. Nice. Okay, which one of the following principles must be assumed?" In order for the psychologist's conclusion to be properly drawn. Yeah, yeah. That's a so that one <clears throat> when it said which one of the following principles must be assumed, I was like, oh well, this is gonna be a necessary assumption question. You're asking me which one, you know, does the argument critically depend on? Yep. Mm-hmm. But then you said which one of the following principles must be assumed in order for it to be properly drawn? Yep. Oh man, because that language really sounds like a sufficient assumption question if we're talking about yeah. the conclusion being properly drawn. But you know, yeah. I think the first clause overpowers the second clause. Which one of the following must be assumed in order for it to be properly drawn? I would yeah. have to say that that's a necessary assumption question. No, I agree 100%. And here's here's the thing what's going on here is it's saying which one of the following principles must be assumed, and that's the key. The principle has to be assumed in order for the conclusion to be properly drawn in order to just means if the conclusion is to be properly drawn. If it can be, yeah, in order to. So to make it even theoretically possible, which one of these had better goddamn be true? Yeah, that's a necessary assumption question. By the way, the word, uh, the uh, principles uh, there does absolutely nothing. There is nothing. This has nothing. This is not a principle question. It's not useful to think about this in any kind of principle category. Uh, this is a 
nasty, necessary assumption question stem. Yep. And because it's a necessary assumption question, you have to go in and look for answers that absolutely have to be true. And the two answers that everyone debates are basically (laughs) the difference between what possibly is a sufficient assumption and what is a necessary assumption, right? And if you don't know what you're looking for and if you think, oh, it says properly drawn, therefore it must be a sufficient assumption question, uh, you're again looking at keywords as opposed to just the the sentence as a whole. And and this comes back to like another misunderstanding I think I people have with necessary assumptions. Um, when the LSAT is asking for a necessary assumption. It's basically asking for something that's necessary in order for the conclusion to be drawn, but that does not mean that once you have it, the conclusion will be drawn. It's just saying, hey, we need this if you want to have a shot at that. In order for the conclusion to be drawn, this is something that must be assumed, but just because it says in order for the conclusion to be drawn does not mean that it will suddenly be drawn once you have it. You're you're then switching it around and turning it into a sufficient assumption. To change this into a sufficient assumption question, it would literally have to say which one of the following principles not must be assumed, but if – yeah. Assumed, not that it has to be, but if it were, uh, would allow the psychologist's conclusion to be properly drawn. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, cool. <clears throat> difference between necessary and sufficient assumption questions, by the way, is really important, and I think people, uh, even some of the high high scorers, don't really grasp it. I was working with a student last night uh, via Skype, who is a, really an excellent student. She's, she's killing it, you know, and she's got practice test scores in the mid one seventies and she, uh, a lot of the time mid one seventies and, yeah. she, but she sometimes dips down into the one sixties and I was working with her last night and I said, what type of question is this? And she said, necessary assumption. And I said, very good. This is a necessary assumption question. So now tell me, what are you looking for on a necessary assumption question? And she's like, uh, well, um, I'm looking for the gap in the argument and I want the one that will, you know, get us from the, this evidence to the conclusion. And I'm like, Oh, oh, you are thinking about this totally wrong. You know, good job recognizing that it's a necessary assumption question. Yeah. Bad job knowing what to do on a necessary assumption question. You're not trying to make the argument win on a necessary assumption question. You're looking for the one that, if false, will make the argument lose. You're thinking, which one of these had better be true or else I'm in trouble? Yeah. Um, Not which one of the following, if true, now makes everything great and dandy. That's a sufficient assumption question. Yep. We're... And sufficient assumption questions, I think, are much more predictable. You can just say, hey, here's your evidence. Here's your conclusion. I'm going to help you build a bridge from here to there. You can almost always predict the answer on a sufficient assumption question. Necessary assumption questions are a lot trickier because they can bring up some shit that you never even contemplated at all. For example, you're trying to prove that George is in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Well, then you have necessarily assumed that he is not on a spaceship headed to the center of the sun. True. That must be true, that he is not on a spaceship headed to the center of the sun. That is a necessary assumption of the argument. That does not help you win your case in any meaningful sense. That is not helping you to win your case. 
It, but it does in a very, very, very small way, right? Well, like if it, you said, hey, guess what? He's not on a spaceship going to the sun. You'd be like, okay, I'm glad we've ruled out that possibility. Now yes. we're, uh, you know, a half a nanosecond closer yeah. to proving our conclusion. Now we have every other place that he could possibly be in the entire universe. It doesn't – so it's <laughs> it, it's more about defense than it is about offense. Sufficient assumption mm-hmm. questions are about offense. Bridge the gap, make the argument, win. Necessary assumption questions are a lot like, well – this doesn't make us win, but boy, if it were false, it would make us lose. If this guy yeah. is on a spaceship, then he is not in Chicago, Illinois. So he, yeah, he had better not be on a spaceship. This is a necessary assumption of my argument, even though it does not in any way help me to bridge the gap between my evidence and my conclusion. You know, I think the big problem stems from the fact that in normal everyday life, when people use the word necessary, they don't use it the way it should be used. They use it in um, a a more complete way. Like when they ask, hey, what do you know, I'm going on a hiking trip. What do I need? If if you turn to them and say, well, uh, you're going to need a bag of uh, trail mix, right? And they're like, Okay, great. I got that. Um, I guess we're good to go. And you're like, well, no, you'll need some shoes too, and and you'll probably need a backpack and a sleeping bag, and um, you know, I could go on and on and on. But you do need some trail mix because otherwise you're going to get hungry while we're hiking or whatever. But the point is, is that when people ask what they need, they're really asking for everything mm, yeah. that I need, which is ultimately the definition of a sufficient assumption. A sufficient assumption is everything you need or more. Right, right. So anyways, I don't don't mean to belabor that, but like I guess I think that's the source of the confusion, right? When they're using that word need, they're they're applying their sort of intuitive sense of what that means. And they're like, well, this answer doesn't have everything that I need to get to the conclusion, so it's not necessary. And it, it is. Uh, it, or it might be if it's if it's something that if it's the bare minimum. Yeah, sufficient assumption. Which one, if true, makes us win? Necessary assumption. Which one, if false, makes us lose? That's. Yep. I mean, that's the inquiry. That's how you know whether you're picking the right answer or not. On a sufficient assumption question, the correct answer makes it so that you cannot possibly lose your case because you have directly connected the evidence that you have to the conclusion you want. On a necessary assumption question, the correct answer could be a bizarre, weird defense against some crazy attack, but it's still the answer if, when it's false, it would cause the argument to fail. Yep. That's what necessary means. All right. Maybe we should uh, move on? Sure. Thanks, Justin. Um, Okay. I'm currently studying for the September LSAT and also working full-time at an immigration law firm in New York. My hours are pretty crazy, but I am earning valuable legal experience. However, my sister has offered me the opportunity to live with her and her husband and nanny her baby in California while I study for the LSAT and apply for law school. This would be a great opportunity for me to focus on the test and applications without becoming too mentally exhausted from the grind of New York. However, my main hesitation is that I'll have a gap on my resume. Would having a four-month gap work against me on my law school applications? Thanks, Annabelle. Uh, I don't think it would matter. What do you think? I definitely don't think it would matter. I wish we would have asked Anne this because she would have 
been able to talk a little bit more with authority about gaps, but in my experience, and you know, I'm in my 11th year as an LSAT teacher in my experience, people have gaps and shit on their resumes all the time. Uh, also in my experience, LSAT is such a powerful determinant of where you go and how much you pay to go there. Well, plus I was just thinking on your resume. Yeah. I I was going to say that too. So I don't mean to jump here, but LSAT score is so much more valuable that if she even does have a gap, uh, if this, if this, uh, move could actually help her, I, I'm not so sure it would necessarily help her, but if she has a pretty crazy job job, then maybe it would. But if it helps her get even two or three more points, hands down, that's going to do way more than, Oh, I have a complete resume, but I was going to say, Hey, why not just uh, put years on your resume? You know, Hey, I worked at this law firm from 2016 to 2017. <laughs> yeah, to which, which is a fact. But, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I think that's totally fine. And yeah, I mean, a good LSAT score is going to be much more valuable than four additional months of experience in this immigration law firm. Um, uh, you know, furthermore, sounds pretty good. You know, live with your sister, got a new baby to take care of. Um, it sounds like a pretty easy, calm way to, to, to chip away at the LSAT over the next few months. Um, if you knock it out of the park on the LSAT, you're going to do just fine. I, I, I don't, yeah. If, if, you know, she says she's pretty, got pretty crazy hours. She's talking about New York city, the grind of New York, yeah, I when I read this, I was immediately like, absolutely do it. Why Why would you not do it? I guess my concern was just sometimes you can get in kind of a slow-moving environment and then <laughs> not end up doing very much. You know? Tell me about it. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I, it does sound like it's pretty crazy, and if she doesn't have to worry about rent, and I mean, even if she can just carve out, you know, two hours, three hours a day, which would be pretty easy in this new schedule, it sounds like, then she'll have plenty of time to really master the LSAT and have plenty of other time to sleep, <laughs> exercise, yeah. and do everything else that just makes you sharp and focused for when you do study. Well, all that stuff is really important. You know, you need to practice being successful on the test. And one way you do that is you study when you're well-rested, you know, um, you got your exercise, you got your nutrition, you got everything dialed in and, and you feel happy, focused, confident that that helps you to do better on the test today Yeah, and doing better on the test today helps you to do better on the test tomorrow because you just start to really get the feel of it, you know, and it's like making sense and you start to have good vibes um, related to the test. And then that, that all snowballs, um, the reverse is also true. If you study after work and you're tired and hungry and angry and, um, you know, then you do shitty. Now you're like, you know, now you go into the downward spiral. So yeah, yeah I, I think getting yourself into a place where you've got plenty of time, cause it's not just time for the LSAT. It's also sleeping. It's incredibly important. Nutrition, exercise, friends and family, all that shit is incredibly important. I mean, you know, this sounds like it has an opportunity to strengthen her relationship with her sister, her brother-in-law, and this new niece or nephew that she has. Um, I feel like that can have real benefits for your LSAT score. Yeah. Because you're happier in your life. And when you're happier in your life, you just tend to do better on everything. Yeah. 
So I think Annabelle should go for it. And this is pretty clear to me. Kumbaya. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Singing on this podcast. That might yeah, be the first. Yeah, sorry. That just came to my mind. This is good. Thanks, Annabelle. Do <laughs> uh, you want to read the next one? Sure. Hi, Nathan. I'm a new listener to the Thinking Outside podcast. And first of all, I wanted to thank you and Ben for putting together that resource. Uh, I came across, yeah, no problem. Uh-huh. Uh, I came across a problem, a question regarding whether the phrase, as long as, introduces the sufficient or necessary condition. Mm-hmm. The specific question is from blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure if you can discuss it. Well, my gut reaction is that as long as equals if. So I would say that's sufficient, but it would be helpful to see the, the whole thing. I'm going to look it up really quick. Yeah, I'm looking it up too. Here we go. Yeah, as long as is if. Yeah, this is she's, she's talking about an answer choice, and the answer choice starts with as long as, and then says a bunch of stuff. And in this context, it means if. And I, I'd be comfortable with saying in almost any context, it's probably going to be an if. I, I think that that phrase. Um, suggests a sufficient condition. So I'm cool with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, it feels too much to me. Like she's hunting for magic keywords, right? Like does this phrase introduce a sufficient or necessary condition? Well, okay. Chill out, (laughs) read the whole thing. What's it say? Uh, What's it mean? And uh, yeah, in this case, as long as means if, and usually if it's just if X, then that's always going to be introducing a sufficient condition because the if is on the left and the then is on the right and sufficient's on the left. So as long as if it means if means sufficient, but I just don't want her to be like it. Like if she has a list of these phrases or something and she's trying to memorize them, I think that's really a bad idea. See, I, I don't have that much of an issue with it. In fact, mm. I ha- I have a list of uh, sufficient indicators, and I do think context is really important, and that's yeah. where people can get screwed. And so I don't want to send people in the wrong direction with a list. But at the same time, uh, I see phrases often that I know mean if, and I'm more just uh, confirming that they mean if, in the context, you really do think it's important to understand what the sentence is saying. So Absolutely. in the context of understanding what is being said, I feel like it gives me uh, confirmation. Like, oh, yeah, I feel like this is saying if, and I know that's a phrase that almost always means if. And so I, I can. Qu- so it allows me to move faster through answer choices, I feel like. And so I, I don't necessarily have a problem with this, but um, it is important to understand the sentence first yeah, and foremost. I, I'm fine with with knowing that as long as usually means if. I just don't want you I don't want people to be so caught up in these keywords and special phrases that they then lose sight of what the entirety of the answer yes. choice is saying. You do have to yes. read the whole thing. Language is funny. One word later in the sentence might blow the whole thing, you know. <laughs> it can change a lot. So you you need to read uh, all the words, not just a couple of the words, but I'm glad that she, you know, she realized that she wasn't sure what was happening here with this phrase and she wrote into the show. So that's awesome. By the way, if you would like to write into the show, you can reach both of us help at thinking Um, 
Okay, I know you have to go pretty quick, Ben, but you want to keep trying to make it through? Yeah, let's do one more. Yeah, yeah. so this next one is just... Um, Bertha wants to talk about the three takes in two years rule going away, which we already talked yeah. about. So we already covered that, I think, for you, Bertha. Uh, P.S. I never properly thanked you for reading my email and answering my questions on the show. I've been busy stimulating testing conditions in the afternoon per your advice. I will update you on how things go. Lately, I've been getting uh, in the 170 to 173 range, which is good, but looking to do as well as I can on test day. Um, wow, that's great. That's more than good. 171 is awesome. I mean, 170 to 173, she's talking about 97th to 99th percentile there. And uh, I think she should probably count her blessings and, and celebrate where she's at. And then, yeah, if she can score higher than that on test day, that's awesome. But um, I don't, you know, just, <laughs> you got to be grateful for where you are in life. And she's uh, in an awful good spot. Yeah. Just a side note on that, by the way, I think a lot of times people, um, you know, high achievers in particular who have done really well in college and maybe done very well in the SAT and they have sort of high expectations for themselves. Sometimes I don't think they realize how well they're doing. Yeah. So like, for example, uh, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day and they had they had reached 160 and they're like, you know, I've, I've gone up like eight points or so, but I'm still only at 160 and I'm just very disappointed in myself. And I said, well, you know, 160 is, is at the 80th percentile. So it means you're in the top 20 now percent of test takers. I am confident you can do better. And I, I think that you do have, um, some ways to go in terms of your potential improvement, but don't, <laughs> don't think of this as like a, I mean, the way she was talking about it, it sounded like she got a D or something, you know? And it's like, this is, this is a good score. And even like a 165 or 164, you're already at the 90th percentile. That means you're in the top 10% of test takers. So, um, in any case, yeah, just to kind yeah, of, I mean, your point, I've people seen people are, go to Harvard with a mid one sixties and there's other people who, you know, a 160 would be the be all end all fantasy score for them, right? There's some people yeah. who are currently at 139 and they would kill for your 160. So yeah. if you're at 160, you got to give yourself a little bit of a pat on the back and just, of course, yeah, you can shoot for higher. But if you're going around with your head hanging because of your 160 or your 165, I, I, I have a hard time feeling too sorry for you compared to everyone else in the world. I mean, count your blessings. <laughs> Realize yeah. that if you took the test today, you would score in the 80th percentile or whatever it is. Um, you know, for, for Bertha here, she's going to score in the high 90s percentiles with her 170 yeah. and yeah. um I, I don't want her to be so attached to a 176 that she then goes into the test and in a downward spiral and ends up getting a 162 because that can happen sometimes yeah. for people sure. who who uh who aren't you have to become you have to become comfortable with the game you actually have rather than the game you wish you had yeah and that that becomes more and more true as we as we approach the actual date of the test. When you go in on the actual date of the test, you have to play the game you have. You cannot be fantasizing about scoring 10 points higher than your practice test scores, right? Okay. Um, all right, another email. Let's do it. Okay. Greetings, Ben and Nathan. 
I just have a quick question about the level of difficulty of previous LSATs compared to the newer versions. When I started restudying for the LSAT, I started with prep tests 62 to 71, and I was constantly getting anywhere between 6 to 9 wrong in reading comprehension and one scoring as low as 11. On my September 2016 LSAT, I got 12 wrong, and suffice to say, I've always been a ho- at horrible at reading comp. Um, <clears throat> well, that's not horrible. Maybe it's not great. But in any case, now I just started taking tests from the booklet containing 42 to 51. And on the first three tests, I have scored minus 4, minus 4, minus 3 on reading comp. Prior to starting these prep tests, I have been studying using the PowerScore Bibles. And I have dedicated most of my time up until this point to RC because of how horribly I scored on my actual test. Basically, I'm hoping that my success in these sections as as of recent have been because of my studying, but I know that a lot of people argue that the RCs in previous years prior to 2007 are significantly easier. Let me know what your thoughts are. I think it's uh, both, honestly. I think it's attributed to his studying. I think these uh, reading comps are easier. I know you you might disagree on that last point, but... Um, that's that's my take, at least, on what he's saying. Yeah, I've seen some stuff on the very recent tests where I've scratched my head a little bit and I've thought, oh, okay, yeah, I see that. That feels a little tougher. Um, but it's not like the difference between uh, minus 11 and minus 3, you know, or minus 12 and minus 3. There's no way sure. that it's that much harder. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It, I agree. And people always sell themselves short, right? They're like, well, they do well on a practice test. And then they go, oh, well, this was an easy one though, right? And I go, (laughs) not really. I mean, generally, if you do better, it's probably because you have gotten better at the test. I mean, people can and do improve significantly on the LSAT. So if this is now, you know, minus four, minus four, minus three, I don't see any reason why you can't replicate that or at least come close to that on the newer reading comprehension, right? Like what is it? Maybe two or three questions more difficult because you're not saying it's six or seven questions more difficult, right? No, it can't be. no, no. But it is, I, I, I think one thing that can happen here is that, um, mm, I know what you're going to say. Oh, Oh, I'm curious. What am I going to say? Just curious. I'm going to prognosticate. You're going to say, okay, go for it. <laughs> you're going to say that, um, you can kind of uh, you can get off on the wrong foot, and you can start feeling as if you're struggling with it, because yes. it is a little bit harder, and yeah. you can stumble, and that yeah. one stumble can cause you to then stumble on the next hurdle and the next hurdle, and then you just eat shit and skin up your knees. <laughs> That's what I don't think I said I would have said eat shit, but I like that. I'm glad you said it on my behalf. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that that can happen. And so for some people, these can snowball out of control. And unfortunately, it's not that much more difficult. But uh, because you feel like it is, uh, you let it become yeah. much more difficult. But I do I do think it is objectively a little more difficult. And that can, uh, you know, be reflected yeah. in people's results. But I mean, that snowball thing, it is real. You know, uh, yeah. I, I'm a I'm a dorky amateur golfer, as long time listeners would know. And uh, there, you know, you can go out to the golf course feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm playing well, you know, I, feel, I played great yesterday, you know, I'm ready to go get them today. But then today, the wind is blowing 10 miles an hour more than it was yesterday. And that 10 miles an hour of wind is a real effect. I mean, it, it is going to make the golf course tougher. The challenge is to not let that 
uh, snowball using your word into, um, into a complete crash and burn. Uh, because yeah, okay. The wind was in your face here and you made bogey on a hole that you parred yesterday. And yeah, the wind makes it a shot tougher. But now if you get in your head and you get all pissed off thinking about how, Oh, I should birdie that hole. I only made par. I suck. And then you make a bad swing on the next tee. And now all of a sudden, I mean, that's how you can like really blow up. So yeah. I worry that that's what happens on the reading comprehension when, when people come with these crazy, like I can get minus five, but then I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty consistent minus four, minus four, minus five, whatever. And then they get a minus 12. It's like, well, it wasn't that much harder. It could have been a little harder, but really it's pretty clear that something in your approach got messed up. You lost your mojo there. And when you lose your mojo, all kinds of bad shit can happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so thanks for writing in. Um, good question. Uh, did you want to talk about this? Yeah. The, the email signature here signature. is puzzling. I'm going to leave the name out because I don't yeah. want to blow anybody up here, but in the, it says best. And then it has the, the correspondence name. And then it says university of Chicago comma the law school juris doctor candidate class of 2020. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, and then it has assume... his undergraduate listed as well, his, his undergrad degree listed as well under that. But yeah, what do you assume here? Let's, let's, what do we think is it? Cause this guy's asking for LSAT advice. He's studying about, he's studying for the LSAT. Yeah. So 2020 would be, uh, you matriculate in, uh, 2018, right? Uh, two, no, 2017. Oh, what that makes it even? Oh, yeah. Two thousand. Sorry, two thousand seventeen. Okay, so this year. So <laughs> he would have already have to have been accepted, or he thinks he's going to get accepted late off the wait list. He's retaking the June LSAT, and then he's going to he's going to get in off the wait list. And he's he's got the super wishful thinking by putting University of Chicago Law School in his email. It's it's um. It it might be. Do you know? Are you familiar with the book The Secret? Oh yeah, I haven't read it, but I feel like it's like a, my my impression of that book. I have this like image in my head of like some like fake stamp on it, right? Doesn't it have like yeah, a, like, the like, candle wax thing, the stamp yeah, letter, and, and I have thing. this feeling this is like a total sham because well, <laughs> what's his name? Yeah, uh, Noah. Who's this comedian? Oh. Noah. I don't know who you're talking about. Oh, uh, anyways, he just said that <laughs> Donald Trump read the secret, and he's it's the only he's the only person that it worked for. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. The, so the secret it is like a very it feels very culty to me. People who are into yeah. it are super into it, and so I'm wondering if this correspondent didn't he read the secret and he decided that you're supposed to put out into the universe what you want and act as if you already have it. And yeah. so that's what he's doing here is just, yep, I'm with <laughs> University of Chicago Law School class of 2020. They will admit oh, to me. They shall admit me after I kill the June LSAT. Well, hey, optimism. That's awesome. Uh, and otherwise, boy, uh, that's that's puzzling. So if this correspondent would like to write into us, no, we, did, we didn't blow him up with his name. So if he wants to write into us and explain that, that we would really appreciate it. But yeah, otherwise, I think you're doing that. Yeah, I'm gonna. What am I? I'm gonna start put? spending Boy. money like I already have it. Yeah, that's a scary. <laughs> I got a billion thing. dollars. You want to go in with me? We can buy part of uh, <laughs> SpaceX. Awesome. Um, do you want to leave it there, or should we keep going? 
Yeah, we should probably leave it there. Okay. Although, dang, dude, we have a ton, man. I know. It's. I'm Can sorry. Can we knock off any other of these? It's so long. Well, we're going to have to start going through these in advance and actually creating an agenda. And I, I apologize to um, people if we're taking a while to get back to you. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, we have been a, a little bit successful, I guess, with the show. Thank you very much, by the way, for telling a friend, spreading the word, uh, giving us five stars on iTunes, writing us a review on iTunes, telling your uh, pre-law society about the Thinking Else at podcast. Um Tattooing, thinking LSAT on your forearm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, how many pictures have you gotten with that? That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so, so yeah, uh, we will do our best to get through your emails. It's possible that we might have to not do every single one of them, um, but we will do the ones that, that we think are going to be the most applicable to the most people and you can always reach out to us individually if you need more help with LSAT stuff. Uh, we're both in the LSAT business uh, still and um, do have products and services available to help you. My website is foxlsat.com. Ben's website is strategyprep.com. And we are very reachable uh, by telephone, email. You can, uh, you know, anytime you need help, please let us know what we can do. Otherwise, uh, I don't know. Thanks for listening. Any uh, final words, Ben? No, thank you. It's always fun. Awesome. Talk to you soon.